you become addicted to the roller coaster. So when you return to a life which is, uh, you know, just more mundane, you, people have a tr tough time coping because the roller coaster isn't there. So, so you have a tendency sometimes in those early stages to make make something out of nothing because you're just trying to get your trying to get some kind of emotions going in you and and that. so so you part of the maturing process is to to relearn the you know the 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 slow progression of life as opposed to you know everything being this this constant up and down uh, excitement Twelve Steps, a story by Peter Stockland. How odd for Morris to be arriving with her now, when he has never, not once in his life, pulled off the forelane to visit this town where he was born. The bypass was built when he was a newborn. There has never been any reason to swerve up the flyover and stop for even a few minutes. There are, in a leftover jewelry box, two photographs of him in the house his family lived in before they moved away. He could show her the pictures, if he could find the box. In the first, he is not even in the house yet. His mother, in a white summer blouse and a cotton skirt that looks black but could be navy blue, is on the front steps holding a baby in her arms. She always said she was coming home from the hospital with him. The baby is wrapped in a blanket the shade of light-bleached Kodachrome blue, and his mother's clothing is consistent with the timing of his birth. So the claim is conceivably true. Shade from a tree to the photographer's left patches her face. In the second picture, he is wearing a white cotton infant's bonnet with the strings dangling loose under his chin. The photo is so small it takes a magnifying glass to see details. He could only take his mother's word, though she was a universally acknowledged liar that the face in the square white frame is his. Beyond that, his family's days in the town were a handful of stories that drifted in childhood memory with the angular momentum of red, yellow, blue birthday balloons tied to a backyard clothesline. One story is about a man named Mr. Royce who got drunk at their kitchen table and mistaking the cellar door for the back door, tumbled down the steep steps and broke his back. Morris's mother comes to the rescue. A second story has his father spending a night in the drunk tank after refusing to pay the bill in the local Chinese restaurant because, he claimed, the food he'd just eaten was inedible. Mother is once again the savior. In a third tale, his mother hangs from the low limb of the tree in the front yard, her knees hooked over the branch so that her hair tangles in the grass and her skirt falls over her face as neighborhood children walk home from school. Now, Morris and Elizabetha cruise along the main street, which he notices is named Lorne, 
which rhymes in his head with forlorn, forlorn-lorn, long forgotten, once street famous across Canada for having a mother-in-law named Queen Victoria. Parking sparks curiosity about how many blocks it is from Lorn to the storied house on 12th Avenue. Is it worth driving Elizabeth past a place he lived in just long enough to have his picture taken, wearing a newborn's cap, where his newborn memories were vacated before they could form? It's a small town. How long could it take? He might even see the tree, unless it's been cut down. I have to eat first, he says, or there could be trouble. Elizabetha, getting out of the passenger side, turns, twisting, to laugh back into the car. She could be looking down at him from the upside of a teeter-totter. He is the stabilizing dad with his feet planted. She celebrates this exact day, seven months of sobriety. It's the longest she's gone for a decade without being hammered. She got sober, she prays for good, three months after her 25th birthday. What's good, she says. They are side by side on the dry heat August sidewalk in front of a building with a painted sign splashed across the brickwork. It says, DeMarco's Family Shoes, 1957. A more recently painted logo across the plate glass says, Ajax Video and Gaming. Bankruptcy brown paper covers the window and glass door. Prophecy? Coincidence? Morris has returned to his place of birth to guide a client through the process of going tits up while keeping as much skin as possible intact. Elizabetha, facing her own dry drunk financial turbulence, is tagging along as his assistant to learn how it's done. No idea, Morris says. I was weeks old when we moved. I don't even know how many weeks. They walk a quarter block and stop at the Happy Dragon Cafe, Chinese and Canadian food served always. Elizabetha studies a menu taped conscientiously to the inside of the door. She sports her bright red backpack full of the pamphlets she distributes. She is an AA evangelical. Today's visit might include striking up a cafe conversation with someone having a beer at lunch. Egg foo young, she says. Kind of early in the day for that, isn't it? Three doors down is the Harvest House restaurant and fine dining room. Great food, fine dining. Morris is ready to harp on about clubhouse sandwiches. Elizabetha is a highly literate reader of faces. He was a proverbial open book to her, even before she asked him to become her AA sponsor. She pulls open the door. Love your timing, Morris says. What he really wants to say is that he wishes Elizabetha were 15 years older so he could fall in love with her. But no, time is time. No arguing with it. The harvest house feels like an abandoned house where objects in place go untouched except by light and cooling dust. At the far end of the large square room, in the entrance to a smaller back room, a sign on a chair tells customers, fine dining closed. 
there's no sign it will open again. Two lone customers in a back booth could be in a wall print rescued at the chattel auction of a closed-down motel. Was this where his father and Mr. Royce came for dinner before starting the night of drinking that ended with the fall down the stairs? Was his mother drinking with them at the kitchen table, or had she gone to bed and gotten up in the middle of the night to save the day? The story has its gaps. A short, wide man greets Morris and Elizabetha at the door and leads them to their booth, turning his head to chat small-town welcome over his shoulder, and owner's friendliness fixes his smile. No other staff appear apparent. He wears a blue-and-white striped shirt with a hung-out tail drooping over hitched-up gabardine pants, long separated from their suit jacket. Morris feels short, walking behind Elizabetha, although he outstrips her by at least five inches. Slenderness gives her elegance, which translates into the illusion of height. He likes to watch her walk in front of him, her years of morning shakes notwithstanding. She steps with a dance prodigy's self-assurance. Sobriety's best part, she tells everyone, is freedom from waking up ashamed. Moaning, oh God, what did I do, was her spiritual dry heave. Get your coffee, the short wide owner says. Menus? The pot is in his hand. He fans, card sharp style, plasticized enticements of all he has that is good. He tricks up a look of disappointment when Elizabetha asks if she can still get breakfast, then glances at his watch and promises to sneak her order past the cook. He disappears through a swinging door, and reappears in the oblong kitchen order window as the cook. Western omelet, Morris says. Kind of late in the day for that, isn't it? Hey, Mr. Clubhouse Sandwich, Elizabetha says. When I spent three months on the all-day all-vodka diet, eggs were my salvation. Except in Chinese food, Morris says. Except in greasy rice. Greasy eggs are gross. Elizabetha tilts hard to declaration over consideration. Morris was 11 months and two weeks sober himself before he mastered the art of refusing to argue with drunks. It took another year before he stopped arguing with sober people, except in court, while executing his professional duties. The man with no front teeth slides into the booth on Elizabeth's side of the table just after their food arrives. The red backpack of AA pamphlets could have blocked him, obliging him to pass them by, but she has passed it over to Morris for safekeeping. The all-day, all-vodka diet is hell on money and memory, and she hates leaving the backpack behind. Bite for a buddy, the man with no front teeth says. Morris is answerless. The man reaches across the table and takes a quarter of the clubhouse sandwich back to himself. Paintball splatters of bacon, turkey, mayonnaise, and toast crumbs form around the hole of his mouth. Elizabetha leans hard right in reflexive disgust. Help yourself, Morris says. He pushes the plate across the table to signal resignation. Too late, 
He sees it taken as welcome. The man settles his butt into the seat and makes himself at home. Elizabeta looks ready to scale the plastic divider that separates the booths. Morris has never before seen her enraged. He has seen her, especially in the early days of sponsorship, weeping, lying naked under the sheet on her bed, unable to get up to put on a leotard, tiptoeing along the delicate balance beam of why not just one drink. But this angry? These eyes of a robot toy? Never. A friend of his used to say that humor must always come out. So, it seems, must sequestered fury. The guest waves improv hands over the sandwich and the ketchup fries. He might be a movie priest acting out Hollywood's idea of Eucharistic blessing. I'm good, he says. I just needed something on my stomach. The food here is shit, but it keeps away the heaves. And the price is right, too, Morris says. His irony produces a working shrug. Sawdust flecks on the chest and arms of the red-black wool workshirt must be from the local mill. The shovel-dug cheeks, O-ring mouth, and tilt-back eyes are from mornings of heavy drinking after nights on the graveyard shift. Across the table comes the smell of cherry wine and river-soaked saw logs. You know me, he says. Elizabeth's shoulders twist so far right that her back almost fully turns on Mr. Dental Wreck. Her long left arm loops across her chest so her hand can grip her right clavicle to eliminate any risk of physical contact. Her looking back eyes expect to see a detailed plan for escape. I don't know about that, Morris says. Where would we meet? Dental Wreck leans right too, his reaching shirt sleeve brushing Elizabeth's goosebumps. He knocks over the salt shaker with his shaking hands. He pulls a sheaf of napkins from the old metal holder to daub his food-smeared mouth with the firm delicacy of a clown removing face paint. See, baby? It's me! Here, he says. Where else? No idea, Morris says. It's the first time I've ever been here. How can that be, when we met here before? Maybe we met somewhere else, Morris says. No, it was here. You've never been here before? Technically, I was born here. But we moved away. Technically? How can someone be technically born somewhere? You're born or you're not. No technically about it. Morris must silently admit this is factually true. Also, that he is logically trapped. Elizabeth could be in a coma or sending out bat signals. Why else would the short white owner at the cash register turn from gazing out the window at Forlorn Lorn Street to look down the row of Harvest House booze? I was born here, Morris says. In this town, I mean. But I've never been in this cafe in my life. The O opens. The cod-colored tongue works a pâté of clubhouse sandwich bits from the bottom gum line where front teeth once stood. It takes a while. Elizabeth might scream. She will 
if Morris doesn't do something now. Hmm, the wreck says. This is where I used to see you all the time. When Morris and Elizabeth first met in the semicircle metal chair basement of St. Barnabas Anglican Church's AA meetings, she too was still steeped in dreidel logic. Her alcoholics out was to spin every question back to the asker, to let it turn on its own unanswerability until all the energy drained away. Though he was never sure it was strictly AA kosher, Morris guided her out of the habit by deploying short story deflections to make her forget, thanks to the graces of the daily vodka diet, the question on the table. She would plead to know why she couldn't try just one drink. He would deflect by describing the shame in the pit of his own stomach when the story was told of his mother hanging upside down, legs hooked over the tree branch. They both needed his stories. Too bad about him not being young enough to fall in love with her. I have to get out, Elizabetha says. Can you move? Rex's lips purse over the O, and Morris recognizes his sudden awareness that there is a person sitting beside him. Out of the fog, Elizabetha comes into existence. She has to go, Morris says. P, Elizabetha says, get out. It's complanation, half command, half explanation. Freed, standing at the booth's edge, she holds out her arm and beckons for Morris to hand over her red backpack. Her legs are high wheels, turning as she follows the finger-pointing sign through the back booth maze down the dark hall to the toilets. Wreck scooches into the middle of the booth. He'll have to get back up to let Elizabetha back in anyway, assuming she comes back. There is no guarantee. The sandwich is stuck in the no-man's land between them. Morris tracks the minutes that Elizabetha is missing. Has she escaped? A drinking friend of his got caught trying to do a dine-and-dash by climbing, shit-faced, out the bathroom window of a Chinese cafe. The owner, twigging, brought a cleaver. Morris ended up paying the bill. Piece of shit. What a piece of shit. Excuse me, Morris says. What? Sympathy for the drunkard goes only so far. Elizabeth's curse is shame. Morris's curse is how long it took him to learn how far was too far. His mother hung her knees on the branch of a tree. His father spent the night in jail. He ended up on a plastic sheet in detox 13 times, a baker's dozen, before everyone was gone, before none of them would come back. I meant me, Rex says. I'm such a piece of shit. What is wrong with me? Morris pulls meditative breath through his nostrils. From childhood, he could smell degrees of drunkenness in any given room. His days as a crown prosecutor sharpened his nose to catch cons in progress. AA sponsorship helps him sniff out the highly specialized con called alcoholic self-accusation. It's another kind of spiritual dry heave. He exhales. I'd say what's wrong with you, 
is you're a drunk, he says, but I've just met you for the first time, so I'm only guessing. Rex odor wafts. It is layers of splashed wine and soaked sweat and sawdust and old wool workshirt. Is it strong enough to reach the front of the harvest house where the owner waits behind the till? Is it what brings him in his gabardine pants to the booth? Something does. He arrives just as Elizabeth returns. She waits on Morris's side. How can someone be so tall and so small in the same clothes? The owner asks if everything is okay. Asking says he knows it's not. His fixed smile has dropped away. Out, Tooley, he says. You know your band. I called the cops. Tooley? Nickname? Job at the sawmill before the booze did its diminishing damage? Childhood diminutive turned playground taunt. Morris has no clue how the man across from him got his name or lost his front teeth. He could, though, be inside the skin of Tooley's scalp, so familiar is the debate wavering right now through those pixelated brain cells. The head is a battering ram. By coming up fast enough, Tooley will knock the owner on his ass, maybe have time to stomp him before the cop arrives. But miss? Then he's on the floor and back in the drunk tank, or maybe strapped to an emergency room gurney. His fate depends on how angrily the attending cop and his wife argued during breakfast. Hand the fuck off, Marty, he says. Marty loosens his grip on a clutch of wool work shirt, but doesn't take his hand away entirely. Elizabeth's voice enters now, dubious about its own direction. It's coming and going at the same time, spinning in opposite circles into itself. She reaches into the backpack and pulls out some pamphlets, bending at her waist to maintain balance as she pushes the little AA booklets towards Toothless Thule by way of short, wide Marty. Please, she says, share these. They should help. It's not her disequilibrium that sells her out. No, nor does Morris suss it by scent. Thule stink and the glare of eau de cologne splashed on Elizabeth's wrists and neck overpower even his survivalist sense of smell. But from even further back in childhood, he hears the slight, soft slur of her sibilance, spelling out, What? Vodka? In the bag? In the fucking bag! The bag she gave him for safekeeping. Fucking drunks. Fucking, fucking drunks. Are you drunk? Morris says. Were you in the toilet getting shit-faced? Elizabeth, Jesus, fuck. He hears the imprecision of himself speaking a language that is not his. Or is the speech of a child moved too early from a homeland? A mother tongue now long forgotten. In recovery, he made a vow to speak as if the world is a courtroom, not its stage for precedent-setting argument, but its high, polished bar of ritual politeness. My friend on the other side, your worship, Madam Justice.
Now his F-bombs drop once more, this time as duds. Vow broken, back to zero, and start all over again. Whoa, 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 Marty says. Don't talk to her like that, Tooley says. Mind your fucking business, Elizabeth says. It's fuck all to do with you. Morris raises calm down hands, but it's Tooley she is rounding on. She jabs the point of a pamphlet toward the corner of his left eye. She is filled with the AA evangelical spirit and the mickey of vodka, or whatever it was in the bag. Calm down, miss. There's room in the back of the cruiser for two. The cop has come in through the back door and up the dark hall, moving past the toilets on crepe-soled, steel-toed boots. No jingle keys he, standing behind them. But Elizabeth isn't backing down. She's brandishing. When her hand dives into the backpack to dig out more pamphlets, the constable's hand flinches toward his hip. From his height above her, he bends down toward her, watching her evangelize on AA's 12 steps. I'm trying to help him, she says. Is that against the fucking law now, too? You two fuckers probably need help more than he does. A pair of fucking secret drinkers, I'll bet for sure. The lawyer in Morris rises. He intervenes as a preliminary to the intervention that will come when he and Elizabetha leave this town and get back to where they're from, or in his case, where he now lives. Now that she's drinking again, it will take more than childhood stories to get her sober again, but they will take the twelve steps as many times as needed to get her there. He lays sixty dollars on the table and tells Marty to keep the change. His last look at Tooley takes in the slit eyes above the pursed mouth, calculating the odds of a successful grab-and-run. On the other side of the divider, between the booths, the figures from the bankrupt motel painting have finished their meals. Both stare into separate space. I know that guy, Tooley says, as Morris and Elizabeth walk away. I used to come in here all the time. Blame your shitty food, Marty. This time, Morris goes ahead to open the door for Elizabeth. As she follows, he listens for the slip of her feet, the gap silence of the sideways lurch, but she has too much grace of movement to stumble, even drunk. Her grace and her splashes of eau de cologne cannot disguise her tongue, her sibilant lips. Only steps out onto Lorne Street, Morris doubts there'll ever be an intervention. There might not be one step, never mind twelve. From Elizabeth's face he sees, as much as he wants to refuse to believe, they have suddenly, somehow, arrived at some kind of end. You called me a drunk, she says, in front of those pieces of shit, in that shithole you just had to take us into. That fucking bathroom smelled like day-old barf. I asked if you were drunk, he says. I did not call you a drunk. Fucking A, fucking B, fucking C, fucking D, fucking E, fucking F for fuck off, Morris, she says. You humiliated me in front of them. I'm seven months sober today. 
Is it arguing to state facts? Yes. It's what he does in courtrooms for a living, and what he vows each day he will not do in this world, not with sober people, not with drunks, not with Elizabeth, who sought him as her sponsor. You were seven months sober today, Elizabeth, Morris says. Now we start again. Another vow bites the dust, back to zero. Can they possibly start all over again? She shrinks as the past tense of sober sinks through the fog. She gets smaller and smaller, becomes again the tiny body huddled naked under the sheet, opening her mouth to sob, more than speaking comforting words to her. Morris wants to slide in under the sheet, to be with her, to turn her facing away from him so that he can kiss her back and the base of her neck, wrap his arms around her torso, feel the skin of her stomach on his fingertips and palms, let the sweat of each other's weakness and grace pass back and forth. None of it can happen. He promises her instead that they'll find an AA meeting immediately after his bankruptcy meeting. No, wait, he'll cancel his bankruptcy meeting. They'll find a meeting in a church basement somewhere, or in the back of a cafe, or who knows where, and go to that meeting right away. He'll come back to town for his client. Bankruptcies take time. Sobriety can't wait. Crying. She dives her hands into the backpack again. She's smart enough to have left the bottle in the bathroom trash. Her hands come out clutching pamphlets. He waits for her to throw them with high drama all over the main street of the town where he was born. She tidies them. She squares them neatly off, riffles them with her thumb puts them carefully back into the backpack, gives him hope, forlorn. He said he knew you, Elizabeth said. Is that why you let that drunk sit there beside me? Her shudder whipsaws from head to foot. She dabs at her nose with the cuff of her shirt. Elizabeth, Morris says, come on. He needed to eat. She reads his face as every line a lie. Why can he not just tell her the truth that he does not know himself? I'll find my own way home, she says. Just tell me where the bus depot is. I don't know, he says. I'm not from here. Another lie, of course. Here is exactly where he is from. Starting now, she will not move until he walks away. God knows where she'll go after that. So does Morris. She'll go somewhere to get well and truly shit-faced. And then again, and then again. This moment is the moment when he will never see Elizabeth again. This is not good, he says. 
not at all. She licks her lips. She looks down. She looks up. She looks over her shoulder down the street, away from the direction of his car. He waits as long as he can until he, not she, must at last walk away. Force majeure? No, not really. No, not at all. He could stay. He could tell her the truth, that he does not know himself. He doesn't. From his car, he calls his client and reschedules the bankruptcy meeting. Now there is time to visit 12th Avenue, which startles him by how close it is to downtown. In the absence of memory, imagination makes all things large. His father and Mr. Royce must have walked, make that staggered, home from dinner to keep the drinking going during the night of the fall down the stairs. His mother probably walked down to the courthouse to bail his father out of jail. But where is the tree over whose branch she hung her knees, letting her skirt float down to cover her face and make him feel ashamed later in life that the neighborhood children saw her as they walked home from school? Where is the actual house? The houses along 12th Avenue are wiggly teeth in open spaces. Even the big are small by any measure. Here and there, homes have burned or been torn down, leaving neighbors separated by gaps and depressions. A side yard clothesline comes into view, strung with a stretch of elderly underwear that rotates slowly, losing angular momentum in the seeping afternoon heat. Are those the steps where the photo was taken of him in his mother's arms as he and she came home for the first time? Who knows? He doesn't. He's not from here, except to the extent that he is. Here is where he was born. Toothless Thule, you're born or you're not. No technically about it. Morris makes one last pass up and down 12th Avenue. Nothing twigs. Turning at the T-intersection of the last block and dropping down only one street, he discovers he's right across the road from the entrance ramp to the highway bypass. In 20 seconds, he'll merge into traffic and be on his way home. So he stops. He pulls over and parks, tempting awful curiosity. There's an old-fashioned hip flask in the glove compartment. He's kept it in every car he's ever owned. His name is etched, for professional appearances, into its surface, which is not red like a backpack, but silver. It's burrowed under the owner's manual, which in turn is topped by his registration and insurance, neatly tucked into a square plastic holder. All is order and calm, should he ever have to hand his identity over to an inquiring cop. Buried in almost plain sight, 
the flask remains within arm's reach to teach him daily discipline, to lead him not into temptation. He knows for sure it's empty, but he doesn't know if, should he unscrew the cap, the residue of past hooch, the scent of old booze, a slight stale waft of alcohol will still be there to breathe. He reaches his arm out full length and, leaning right, bending his elbow, hooks two fingers under the glove compartment latch. As he pressures up the latch, he reminds himself to remember to set an alarm on his phone, to have one of the junior lawyers call the bankrupt guy tomorrow and advise him that Morris will not be able to help any further and is dropping him as a client. A few years ago, I met a man on a train who subsequently confirmed my conviction that stories are gifts formed by the very boxes or containers or incubators that deliver them. His is the voice at the beginning of 12 Steps, talking about the roller coaster of addiction, in his case, to alcohol. He is not the direct inspiration for the story, because it delivered itself from an earlier story written before he and I met and began conversing about ideas and events that interest us, including relationships to alcohol. I grew up in circumstances awash in alcohol, but have lived my life indifferent beyond a single drink now and then. He needed two full-fledged efforts at recovery before sobriety returned to his life. Through the miraculous phlogiston of imagination, the momentary solidities of each delivering event melt in the air as the story unwraps itself. Sometimes, as happened this time, the story is read by someone met in transit who says, This seems very real to me. I recognize it. His saying so led to further conversation. What follows is a fragment. Brain chemistry is affected by your, by your addiction and um, your hypothalamus is, it operates a pleasure, pleasure center of your brain and a normal hypothalamus will release the endorphins when you're having fun in all the different ways that you would in, in your life. And alcohol does the same thing. It, it releases the endorphins. Uh, uh, and what happens is once you become an alcoholic, your hypothalamus stops doing it naturally because the alcohol pushes it to do it. So your hypothalamus will actually... Sh so through the... Uh, through the initial stage of drinking, you get maybe you get a little bit of high because you've gotten through your first few weeks or your first month or so, but your hypothalamus doesn't come back to its normal part of production for upwards of uh, 18 months. So you walk around in this kind of emotionless state because your things are happening that most people would find fun, but you're 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 naturally not producing the endorphins to feel like it, uh, the the fun mm -hmm. is there, yeah. and you kind of you got to have the patience to wait that period out, and 
you know, learning that the second time around made things a lot easier because then you, you didn't have to feel like there, there, you knew that there was, there was something there. There was, there was a carrot at the end. You just had to, you had to be patient with it. That's really interesting because, uh, I mean, we forget that this is a biochemical process, right? I remember reading uh, years ago, um, you know, that, this, that the cells actually change and they become accustomed to living or to, to existing in, a, in an alcohol environment. They, they adapt to it. Um, yeah. That's why you get the shakes in the morning until you, as they, the expression goes, they top up. You, yep. you need to bring that that equilibrium back, and we often don't think of it as as a like we know we're taking chemicals into the body, but we don't think of it as this is a biological process. I think that's what you're saying. Yes, right? yes. You have yeah. to be aware of where aware of that. Yeah, yeah, as much an emotional. Yeah, and more to that too, because because it, it, you get that hit and you you create that. Uh, the releasing of those endorphins on demand with the alcohol or whatever drug that you, you take, you're 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 also become addicted to this. You become addicted to the roller coaster. So when you return to a life which is, uh, you know, just more mundane, you people have a tr tough time coping because the roller coaster isn't there. So, so you have a tendency sometimes in those early stages to make make something out of nothing because you're just trying to get your trying to get some kind of emotions going in you and and that. so part of the maturing process is to to relearn the you know the 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 slow progression of life as opposed to you know everything being this this constant up and down uh, excitement yeah despair and uh you know this whole cycle that you would go through yeah, I mean, there's a reason they call it a high, right? I, I think people like me think the need is to be is the intoxication, the, you know, the the, dis, the distancing from the world, but it's actually that sort of excited sense of yeah. engaging with the world. Is that right? Am I? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. There's there's something along that line, and, and you've created this world for yourself that that's your your raison d'être. Yeah, and. Uh, and, and when the, like, you know, they, they always say the highs are so high and the lows are so low, um, right? Like most of us, we, we enjoy the world, but, you know, it's never that terribly exciting. And it's, like I was saying earlier about it being boring, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's never flat boring either. I mean, yeah. it can be on a Sunday afternoon when it's raining, but <laughs> beyond that. Yeah. Um, so you, you, there, there is that physical craving, not just for the drug itself, but for the, but for the world it brings you in a, in a sense, right? Yeah, but, but you brought up something like life isn't dull because a normal person, a healthy person, picks up all the subtleties of life and they draw from that where the addict misses all the subtleties. It's all about the, it's all about the extremes. Mm. And, and memory too, I guess. Eh? Like in, at a certain point in the story, Morris reflects on how um, you know, the vodka a day diet is hell on both money and memory. Mm -hmm. uh, and you really don't remember, clearly anyway. You, you might remember sort of flashpoints of what happened the night before, but you don't have a memory like you or I would have now. No. Uh, so memory, the important function of memory in your life is if not erased, at least at least severely restricted. Yeah. Is that, yeah. yeah. Did, were you aware of that when you were? Yeah, it, you know, you know, normal people, you've, you, you'll remember things as a sequence of events and say somebody drinking, the, you know, their drinking episode would be, um, you know, like 
like a, a big soup of memories where you don't know where the start and the finish is by the, you know by the time you get to the next day yeah and uh, so you'd remember the stuff but you wouldn't remember the order or the context or you know and and like I don't know if you're like this but for me like memory is, is very much sensory like I'm always aware of like the feel of like a, uh, you know what did the day feel like what did it smell like what uh, you know what, what was the light like uh, th- those mm. kind of things and I think when you're when you're drinking that if it doesn't get dulled it, it it may get even worse than that right you don't you don't really feel the sun the way you, you do you, you know you or I might when when we're out walking around is that is that part of it I yeah mean, you become oblivious to certain certain senses that are out there absolutely yeah. And, and because your life becomes so tunneled, uh, your thinking becomes so tunneled. Your experience, you know, you, yeah, certain things like the sun beating, you know, warm sunshine on a face on a spring day, you wouldn't miss. You wouldn't know that when you're hungover. You wouldn't feel it at all. Yeah. Or, or when you're when you're drunk. And that, I wonder if that's part of the function of what draws. You know, there's that kind of mimetic behavior where, when everybody else in the group you're in is experiencing the same thing, then you feel you feel like you're you know you're just a normal part of the group, right? They, everybody feels that way about the sun on their face or yeah. whatever it might be. Is that is that part of it? Was that is that what's difficult about getting away from it? That you have you experience the world in that kind of dulled way or diminished way, but so do they, and so they're they're people who you can have something in common with and 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 share it with. Is that uh, I think for some people maybe, but I was more a solitary drinker, so okay. it was a withdrawing thing for me. Uh, it was so you didn't need the, like there were people you would need to stay away from, but you didn't really need their their social company. No, I could do it on my own. Yeah, could do it on my own. Yeah, a friend of mine that um, he went, he stopped when he was forty one absolutely cold turkey and this guy this was a guy he would have 10 guinness on a friday night to get started and then the night could could begin and he just stopped cold turkey because he said he woke up at 41 and he said i realized that i always thought i'd be dead from drinking by the time i was 40 and then i realized you don't become a young dead drunk you become an old very sick drunk and yeah. <laughs> and life just goes on, and the catalyst for him was sitting in a bar on a, on a Christmas Eve, having drinks with a bunch of folks, and suddenly they were all gone, and he was there by himself, and he I'll never forget him saying, the intensity of the loneliness of realizing that I was the last one left in the bar was almost more than I could bear, wow. and, but you. You, you never, like that was not your experience. You didn't mind going off and... No, I didn't mind going off. For me, at the end, it was, I was becoming aware, uh, you know, the the difficulty with the, the hangovers and that. And you, you can feel it physically, the strain on my body. I f- really felt like I was approaching a point, uh, the, reaching that point of no return. And that was, um, I wouldn't say a wake-up call, but it, 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 it caused a little to think about it, well, do I want to let this point of no return happen? Am I going to just float into that, or am, am I going to um, give, it a, give it a kick at the can and, and, and see what happens? Mm-hmm. Well, was that the second time? The second time. 
yeah, the yeah. second time. Uh, and it was funny because the second time there was, the first time there was an optimism that I was going to recreate create this new life and all that. And and part of the reason why I relapsed is a failure to create the life that I would that I imagined the first time. So the second time around, I I didn't feel that at all, and I almost felt like well, it was more of a, just a rational thing. Let's try one more time without any set goals, and see what comes of it. Mm-hmm. So there was less expectations of a change in my life to be disappointed by. That's very different from, at least as I understand it, from the AA approach, right? I mean, that's a very different, because they have literally 12 steps. Yes. That, and so you have to achieve, well, you don't have to, but the expectation is that you will, at some point, achieve, and you, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but from what I hear you saying, you're saying, no, um, don't, don't, like not, not necessarily don't do those things, but don't believe that you're going to make so many steps and then the light's going to come on and everything's going to be wonderful. Uh, well, I, I, all I can say is through my experience, I, I set myself up for failure by setting expectations that I couldn't achieve for myself. I expected the world to give me these things. Mm. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And when the world didn't give it to me, then I found my way back to returning where now my expectations you know since the second time are you know it is what i can give and you know you 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 learn humility and that's somewhere in the message too is the humility i'd learned it a different way yeah because i think the they say the serenity prayer with the a well that's right at the beginning that's what they do and it's all about the humility at the beginning well i didn't understand that till Couple decades later. Couple decades later. I remember, uh, I probably was 16. Um, I remember walking with a, a friend of mine and asking him, and I really meant this question seriously and, and sincerely, and it's a question that stayed with me all my life. Why can't just walking down a road be fun? Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just the ordinary things that we, and I always bring myself back to that, the ordinary things that we do in life are. The best things we do in life very often. Yes, and and I've often wondered that about people who um, who f- need whether it's the intoxication, whether it's the high, you know, however we would characterize it, that somehow walking down a road just isn't enough. Do, do, do you ever wonder about that? Do you ever do you ever think, that, especially in your in the in your drinking days, did, did that question ever occur to you? Why can't I just sit out on the balcony and enjoy the sun? Well, like when I said earlier, when I was on that street in London and looking at all these people in Midday Street about their business mm-hmm. and that, and and feeling so disconnected from those people that I didn't, ex- I could, couldn't imagine experiencing that at that time. You've been listening to the story 12 Steps and a conversation about addiction and recovery on Fiction Fridays. Please check out the WordWork podcast regularly for new Fiction Friday stories. If you're a writer whose fiction might be suitable for the podcast, please drop us a line at fictionfridays at gmail.com, all lowercase. I'm Peter Stockland. Thanks for listening. Looking forward to hearing from you.